This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. And the best person to get an answer like that from would be Jesus. At Line Upon Line, we answer your Bible questions. Thanks for submitting them. In addition to that answer, open the book of Revelation. God wants you to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And He wants you to have assurance about being ready for the second coming of Jesus. This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. Welcome. We're glad you're here. We have the opportunity right now to answer your Bible questions. I'm John Bradshaw, and he is Eric Flickinger. Thanks for being here, Eric. Here we go again. We have a good t- I, I have a good time doing this. It's fun to answer these. Yeah, it is. If you've got a Bible question, we'd be glad if you would send it to us so we can answer it for you. We'll do our best. If we don't know the answer, we, what will we say? Yeah, we'll just tell you that. We'll just say we don't know the answer. But it hasn't happened yet, not to say that it won't. Here's the address to get your question to. It's lineuponline at iiw.org. Lineuponline at iiw.org. Let's start at the beginning with a question from Barbara. Barbara asks, can you please explain the three angels' messages in Revelation chapter 14? That's a lot to explain, Barbara, but we'll... We'll have a crack at it. Yeah, we'll hit the high points. Probably the best place to start is by reading the verses that apply to the the, uh, three angels' message. Uh, Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 10. John writes, and he says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. Let's stop right there. Let's dive into that. Because uh, if, we, if we read on too long, I don't want to lose you. There's a lot here. And we'll take it a verse at a time. An angel flying in the midst of heaven. These angels represent what? Messengers. Messengers. Angelos in the Greek. Messengers. These are. So not literal angels. They're up in the midst of heaven where everybody can see. And they're crying with, in the Greek language, a megaphone. A megaphone, a loud voice. And what is it that they cry to everyone with this loud voice, these messengers? This message is supposed to go to everybody, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. It's a message about the everlasting gospel. That's really significant. Tell us why that's so important. Because ultimately, the gospel has to go to all the world before Jesus comes back. Without the gospel going to the world, Jesus doesn't come back. He said that in Matthew 24 and verse 14. He did. So here is the everlasting gospel, the final gospel message to go to the world. And it starts off by saying the first angel's message, fear God and give glory to him. We're talking about terror. What are we talking about here? We're talking about terror. We're talking about honor and worship. So we are to worship God, to honor him with all that we say and all that we do. This is a respect and an awe. Now, if you, if you find mingled into your experience just a little, a little fear for God, I don't think God wants us to fear him. Not fear as an I am afraid of God. You don't, you don't want that. You don't fear those that you love. You have no reason to fear those who love you. So fear God, give, gl- give glory to Him. Lots of ways that we can give glory to God. And again, it comes back to how we live our lives, the things we say, the things we do. There's an element also of, of taking care of this body temple. Paul talks about us giving glory to God in the things that we eat, the things that we drink. Uh, we can glorify him spiritually, but we can also glorify him in our body, he mm-hmm. says. The psalmist said, whoever offers praise glorifies God. So this is talking about a life that's lived entirely for the glory of God. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. 
judgment is an integral part of these uh, three angels' messages. God wants us to know that there is a judgment hour, that each person is going to be judged, whether they're going to be saved or lost. And again, that's happening before Jesus comes back. And being as there is a judgment, being as you know that the judge of all the earth is going to look over the record of your life, nothing to be afraid of if you've chosen Jesus as your Savior. Don't let that keep you awake at night. You would want to fear God, love, honor, respect, be in awe of God, live for Him. You would want to give glory to Him with all of your life. So, living in the time of heaven's final judgment, which we are, this is a call to live completely for God. Where does the message next go? Then it says to worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. This brings us back to why we're here, the, the fact that we are created. Created by God, not evolved not the result of some random process created purposefully by God. So the three angels' messages tell you something about how valuable you are, how unique you are, how special you are. And I see in this, the book of Revelation is a little over 400 verses, and almost three quarters of them contain allusions to or quotes from the Old Testament. So where does this quote from? This is coming back all the way back to creation. When God created us, he gave us a, a memorial of the fact that, that we are created, something that we can remember down through time, that very fact, something called the Sabbath. And when you read the fourth commandment, uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor to all thy work. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. It goes on to say, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them as this is a quote from that. So it's a call back to true worship, to biblical worship. When John wrote Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7, he knew what he was doing. And God was using that passage to call humanity down here in earth's latter days back to true worship to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That'd be good if that was the entire answer. We've got two angels to go. What's the second angel's message? Second angel's message is found in verse number 8. Verse number eight says, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That's pretty plain. It is. You go all the way back to Genesis and the Tower of Babel. The languages were, well, made. there was just one language. There was confusion among the languages. This word Babylon really means confusion. How do we understand this confusion in the context of these messages? Revelation 17.5 says, Mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And then in verse 6 it says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So we have here a woman, biblically a, a woman represents a church. Sure. It's a symbolic picture. We've got a woman that it says has this, this wine cup of abominations, the mixture of truth and error together. So there's some Christian entity, or at least supposedly Christian entity, it, it pretends to be a Christian entity, that is mixing truth and error together, and it's getting people confused, drunk. So in Earth's last days, a call to live a life totally committed to God, particularly, or shouldn't say particularly, including in the area of worship, true worship, because the second angel says there will be spiritual confusion in Earth's last days, I think we can very easily say with relation to worship. And so let me read the third angel's message. It says, The third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, 
The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. Just for time's sake, there's more of that, and I hope you don't mind me abbreviating, but I'll get to verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Take it away. So ultimately, you've got two groups at the end of time. One group is going to, as it says there in verse number 12, keep the commandments of God and they will have the faith of Jesus. The faith of Jesus is is really what you saw in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, when Jesus was knew what he was looking forward to on the cross and, and he said, Father, not my will, your will be done. That's the faith of Jesus. So that same faith is what people are going to have down at the very end of time. The righteous are going to have. They'll keep the commandments of God not to be saved, but because they are saved and have that faith of Jesus where they want to do God's will. Another group is not going to have that faith. They're not going to want to be keeping the commandments. And the Bible ultimately there talks about them receiving the mark of the beast. Two groups at the end of time. The mark of the beast, if you receive it, you are lost. If you don't receive it, you receive instead the seal of the living God. A very important uh, subject. By the way, I would love to recommend to you that you check out our It Is Written Bible Study Guides online. Go to www.itiswritten.study. Itiswritten.study. You can study your way through the entire It Is Written Bible study series, including a subject on the mark of the beast. I think that would be a blessing to you. Now for our next question. It's from Ronald, and he says, Very many people say you can worship, oh, it's come up again, any day you want to. Would you please explain to me the fourth commandment, uh, particularly in relation to those who worship on Sunday. Some say you can worship any day of the week, that every day is the Sabbath day. Okay, Eric, where do you take us with this? Well, first of all, we don't want to find out what some people say. We want to go back and see what God's Word has to say. Amen to that. And so in Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse number 8, we'll read that fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment that Ron references there. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he hallowed it. So we take a look at what God wrote with his own finger here in stone. Yeah, do you read anything in there that says every day is the Sabbath day? I didn't find that. What Uh-oh. I find is a lot of these, a lot of very clear uh, pointing to one particular day. So he says, six days you do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. There you go. So he's, he puts his finger on it and he says, this is the day. Which day is the this day? The, the this day... There's only one this day in the Bible, only one seventh day, and that is what the Bible calls the Sabbath. We would often refer to it uh, today as Saturday. Technically, it would begin at sundown on Friday and end at sundown on Saturday. Yeah, so you get people who say you can worship any day of the week. The fact of the matter is you can, and you should worship every day of the week. But in terms of the Sabbath day, the day of rest, the holy day, there's only one. There can only be one because there was only one designated in the Bible. Uh, Ronald? It doesn't matter too much about what other people say. It matters about what God wants and God's love for you and your love for God. God is calling you, me, us to true worship. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You don't do that because somehow law keeping saves you. You're not a legalist. You're not obeying your way to heaven. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's a wonderful uh, statement. 
And if you love God, you want to do His will. People can let people say what they say. Just stand on the Word of God. The Word of God, Ronald, on this question is really clear. Now I've got another question. I think we have time. Let's, let's try to get this right. one. We've got one from, uh, from Patrick here. Okay. Patrick says, uh, can you explain Romans 14, 1 through 6? Doesn't that do away with the health laws? Romans 14, 1 through 6. Patrick, my first response is, man, I hope not, because God gave those health principles for our good. If the Lord giveth good health principles and then taketh away good health principles, that seems to be a little contradictory to the character of God who wants only to bless us and bless us always. Him that is weak, I'm reading in Romans 14 from verse 1, in the faith, weak in the faith, receive, but not to doubtful disputations. Pretty clear, right? Uh, you're talking about someone who's not a seasoned, mature Christian. Uh, welcome that person, but don't get into silly arguments with them. One believes that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth my Bible says herbs, it means vegetables, vegetables only. Now, it says in verse 3, Let not him that eat despise him that does not eat. Let not him that eateth not judge him that eats, for God has received him. Who is this weak fellow? And why is it that he's not wanting to eat um, all things? Well, the weak fellow, as you mentioned, is somebody who's new to the faith. They're not firmly grounded. So they're still trying to put some of the pieces together. Back in the early days of Christianity, there were really two groups of Christians, some who had come in out of paganism and some who had come in out of Judaism. And both groups kind of had a tendency to try to bring a little bit of their, their former beliefs with them. And since they weren't very strong in the faith, those former beliefs got mingled in with their new Christian beliefs, and it left them a little bit weak. It's really interesting, too, that Paul, the same Bible writer, uses the same phrase. And he uses that same phrase over in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He refers to the weak believer. And the weak believer there is the person who does not feel comfortable eating food that's been offered to idols. Paul says, I eat food offered to anything. It doesn't matter. I know that the, who the true God is. But there are some who don't have that same strength in their belief. Maybe they've just come out of idol worship and they feel very shaky eating food offered to idols. And so they don't eat it. So Paul says you want to respect that weaker brother who hasn't grown to the place where he's very confident eating things, appropriate food, irrespective of who it's been offered to. You could, you could really offend somebody who has a thing about that. In verse 5, one man esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Is that referring to the Sabbath day? You know, that verse is frequently quoted as referring to the Sabbath day. But as I read down through chapter 14, I don't see anything that talks about the Sabbath day. So it sounds like somebody is just trying to insinuate the Sabbath into there when it really doesn't talk about it at all. Exactly. Verse 6 speaks more about the day, and it speaks about those who eat, eating to the Lord. God did not give health principles just for a short time. Hey, I want you to be well, but these people after you, let them die. No, that's not what God was saying. God gave us wonderful health principles in the Bible, particularly with regard to clean and unclean food, that help you. And in this age where folks are dying left and right, lifestyle diseases are up like crazy. People are dying way too young because of what they put in. We shouldn't be taking God's good advice and saying, I don't need that, I'm okay on my own. The health laws, the health principles given in the Bible, the health principles given in the Bible are for your good in this world and then in the world to come. 
Line Upon Line at IIW.org. We'd like to get your questions and we'll be back with more Line Upon Line in just a moment. Planning for your financial future is a vital aspect of Christian stewardship. For this reason, It Is Written is pleased to offer free planned giving and estate services. For information on how we can help you, please call 800-992-2219. Call today or visit our website, hislegacy.com. Call 800-992-2219. Don't miss The Dangers of Technology from It Is Written. This electronic age presents our planet with opportunities that were unimaginable just a few years ago. But it also brings some real challenges, among them spiritual challenges. In The Dangers of Technology, you'll learn how you can protect yourself from trouble online, how you can safeguard your children, and simple steps you can take to avoid some common pitfalls. You'll learn from people with real-world experience. Those companies, those child predators are hunting these kids. And with expertise in online security. Once it's out there, it's out there, and it's out there probably forever. Email, texting, social media, the World Wide Web. It's hard to imagine a world without them, but years ago it was impossible to imagine the dangers they would present. The Dangers of Technology, simple solutions to safeguarding you and your family online. Don't miss The Dangers of Technology on It Is Written TV. Watch online at www.itiswritten.tv. This is Line Upon Line from It Is Written. Thanks for joining us. I'm John Bradshaw, and with me, Eric Flickinger. I wanted to thank you for your questions. We get a lot of questions that come into Line Upon Line, and we're excited about being able to bring you some biblical answers to them. And again, if you do have a question, you can send it to us at lineuponline at iiw.org. We do have a question that's come in. And this is Alan's question. Alan asks, is cremation okay in the sight of God? Eric, where do we start with that one? Well, we ultimately want to end up in the Bible, but where we probably want to start is the question behind the question. Usually what prompts this question is a person wondering whether God can save somebody, can resurrect someone who has been cremated, who's been turned into dust. And really that draws into question or brings into question how powerful God is. He formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So God started man from the dust. Ultimately, we're going to go back to the dust. So where does cremation come in? Let's take a look at a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Hey, while you're turning to those verses, let me ask you, Alan, let me ask you a question. So, so somebody is cremated, they're turned to ashes. Somebody is buried, what do they turn into? Somebody, uh, ooh, this could get dark and I don't mean to, but somebody is buried at sea and they turn into fish food. Somebody is, is you know, I don't want to turn this into Friday the 13th, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, ultimately, everybody ends up in pretty much the same form. So if cremation disqualified somebody from being resurrected and going to heaven and being eaten by baboons did not, there'd be some inequality there. There would. Fortunately, Paul gives us a little bit of insight into how the dead are raised up. And this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse number 35. In verse 35, Paul says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And you who and if what you sow 
You do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. There are also celestial bodies, that would be heavenly bodies, and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. Then he says this in verses 42 to 44. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So the good news here that Paul tells us is that the body that goes down into the grave, the sin-cursed, disease-ridden, aged body that goes down into the earth is different from the body that comes up. And I think that's good news. Man, it's good news, all right. Uh, You're going to get a new body, whether you've cremated or buried or some other creative method has been employed to dispose of your body temple. Uh, Jesus at the resurrection has the ability to remake you, and that's what he'll do. You don't have to be cremated. You may prefer one thing over another or another over the one. Do whatever you like. Be nice to your children because they'll ultimately decide. Uh, But please don't be thinking that there's any lack in the part of God or lack of ability in the part of God to raise a person from the dead and make you whole again. All right, we have Mallory's question. This is interesting. Can you explain D.L. Moody's statement, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves? Nah, probably not. Uh, Now, if it was a Bible statement, we could explain that, but I'm not quite sure what Moody was getting at. No, it it sort of parallels Exodus 9, verse number 12. Well, let's look at Exodus 9 and verse 12 then. That might be a little more appropriate for line upon line. It's not that Moody was a bad fellow. He was a great preacher of the Bible and a tremendous man of God and led a lot of people to faith in Christ. But let's try to make this as biblical as we can, Mallory. In Exodus 9, verse number 12, it says, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So, does God turn people away? Did he harden Pharaoh's heart? No, God did not actively harden Pharaoh's heart, but he did give Pharaoh opportunities to move in the right direction. He gave him light. He sent light into his life. He sent incredible light into his life. And over and over again, Pharaoh turned away, turned his back on it, and ultimately paid a very, very hefty price. Moody's really making the point, God can't really bless someone who's full of themselves, who doesn't feel the need for God's blessing. It's not a, it's a biblical concept, I suppose, a biblical concept. Nothing harmful about that. Colin asks us a question. Colin, here it is. Can you explain Matthew 22, 32? where Jesus says he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Matthew 22, 32. You've got to get the background of this because it's very fascinating. In fact, let's go back to hmm, verse 23. The same day it came to him the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. They asked Jesus about this fellow who died. The, the, the man had a bunch of brothers, and the custom back then was, If you died very early on in the marriage, then your wife, your now bereaved wife, would then marry your next eldest brother and so on. Well, this happened seven times and she didn't have any children. And so they want to know whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? They think there's no resurrection. We'll get him. We'll get him with this question. 
And Jesus answered and he said, You do err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. He said in the resurrection, They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. And then he said, As touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Then he said, Jesus said, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So how could he be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if they were dead and would be dead forever? Of course, there's going to be a resurrection. And Jesus was saying, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be resurrected. God is saying, I am the God of these men who right now are dead, but soon they shall live again. What's our next question? Our next question comes from Morris. And Morris says, I am a young man with low self-esteem. I prayed about so much, but never have been able to overcome it. Sometimes it makes me even succumb to sin through peer pressure in situations like those. Does the Bible mention this weakness? And if yes, how can I get myself to gradually overcome it and be a fully devoted Christian? Now that's a serious question. It is. Okay, young man's having some battles, and this is a sincere battle. So how would you advise our brother? Where in the Bible would we go? Well, the first thing I'd probably advise, Morris, is to take a look at your value in the sight of God. If you have low self-esteem, take a look at what God thinks about you. First place we could probably go is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, it says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Yeah, how, so, how valuable does that make a person? He, he makes, Peter says, silver, gold, those are corruptible. Those have no value in, in the long term. But he says, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ which is infinitely more valuable than silver and gold. So, Morris, you are very valuable to God. Take a look also at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, there in 1 Peter 2, verse number 9, in the King James, it says you are a peculiar people. Sometimes people think, well, that's odd or strange. But peculiar doesn't mean odd or strange in that context. It comes from the Greek word peripoesis. And peripoesis means purchased. You were purchased with the blood of Christ. You are a very special person in God's sight. So when people look down on you or you think lowly of yourself, remember the price that was paid by Jesus Christ for you, an incredibly valuable price. It's really important that people see themselves as they are in Christ. See, Morris, you've been redeemed, and God loves you. God so loved Morris that he gave his only begotten son for you, so that if you believe, you won't perish, but you'll have everlasting life. You're so valuable in the sight of God. You mean so much. You're so unique and special to God. It's too bad when we allow another person's view of us to frame our own thinking of us. Don't do that unless that person is Jesus. What do, what do people think of you, Morris? No, wait a minute. That's not what's important. What does God think of you? Rejoice in that and see yourself as God sees you. You're going to be okay. God has great plans for you. That might be our last question for the day. All right. Yeah, it's too bad. But 
If you have a question for us, please email it to us at lineuponline at iiw.org. Lineuponline at iiw.org. With Eric Flickinger, I'm John Bradshaw. Been great to have you with us. We'll see you next time. Until then, God bless you.